Um, I struggle with the beginning of this sermon a little bit. My, my preaching professor years ago at seminary had said, he said, the, the hardest thing about a sermon is getting into it and getting out of it. And it's true. And so this morning I hit the snooze and I'm still kind of undecided a little bit because I'm talking about healing, you know, a story about healing. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, despite all of the political upheaval and controversy there is about healthcare and everybody's horror stories about, you know, getting the run around with healthcare and hospitals and things like that. But I think we could probably all agree that we do have a pretty amazing healthcare system. We're all blessed with the, you know, the, the, the technology just in the era that we live in, you know, that we, we are able to have the kind of treatment, right? And, and all the breakthroughs that have happened that maybe a generation ago would have killed people that, that we're allowed to, uh, to partake in today. So as we're talking about healing today, it's kind of an amazing thing. And we, we live really in an amazing time. And so I was kind of thinking about, in, about that in the six minutes that I had uh, in between the radio going off. And, then, um, but, and I, I have my Bible app on my phone and I have it where, you know, it, it sends me the verse of the day. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, um, if you don't, you should download it. But it's called YouVersion, and uh, it sends you the verse of the day. So I'm, I'm, I got a pretty good streak going. I'm at about like 266 days, so I'm, I'm doing all right. And, you know, that's one of the things, too. You could count your days in a row. But today's verse was Ezekiel 36, and it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I thought that's perfect. You know, we're talking about Jesus healing today. And, and it's so true that God, here's God's promise hundreds of years before Jesus even came to the earth through Ezekiel saying, I want to remove the heart of stone that you have and give you a heart of flesh, one that's soft and malleable, one that I can, that I can work with and I can speak to and, and one that will change instead of just a hard heart, a heart of stone that's, that's unyielding and, and unwilling to even hear what God has to say to you. And so it, it, to me, it was perfect uh, to go with these verses. So let's get into our story. It's John chapter five, verse one through five. We're going to start. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And now there was, there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Verse five, one who was there had been invalid for 38 years. Now, you may have noticed in your Bible or whatever that <clears throat> verse, there is no verse four. It's been redacted. It's been pulled out in part because they believe it was uh, probably a, a scribe as they're copying. Um, the scribes would have been copying the originals. They probably wrote a note probably in the margin of verse four. And so it wasn't when we've gone back and we've gotten these better texts of the, you know, the earlier, better original, closer to the original text, um, they, they found that that part was not in it. So they've pulled it out. It doesn't take away from the inerrancy of scripture or anything like that. It's just what they realized as a scribe had it in the margin before, and they probably just threw it in there. And so we've realized that, taken it out. And so you can see in verse four, really probably just commentary where the guy's not saying that there was actually an angel. It's just describing what people believed. So verse four, you can see it says, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. So it's not necessarily that, you know, it, it would have been a spring, would have bubbled up now and again. And he's probably just describing, the scribe was when he was writing it in the margin, uh, what people believed at the time. But regardless, the whole thing here is a, a story of dozens, perhaps hundreds of people that would have been sick around this pool of water, believing that whatever was happening there was, was going to bring healing. 
And it was kind of this legend that this angel would come and stir the waters and they could be healed. And, and if you've been in you know, situations like that or you felt that, you would be willing to take any risk. You, would, you might just believe about anything if it, it was a chance to, to be healed. And it reminded me, because I've been to Costa Rica a couple times on, on mission trips, and uh, I come back and I'll tell Christy, I'm like, I could retire Costa Rica. Like, if you've ever been to Costa Rica, Pura Vida, okay? That, that's their model, pure, pure life. Pura Vida is fantastic. But anyway, so we've been, and, and the, in Cartago, which is one of, the, one of the main cities, they have a beautiful basilica. And we have a picture of it here. And uh, it's Basilica of Our Lady of the Angels. And we went in 2014 with Southwinds. And there was an original basilica that was built in 1639. This newer building was built in 1924. And there's, based on this legend, okay, there was a little girl years ago in the 1600s who had gone uh, to, toward the river. There was a little statue of Mary that had been, that was on the rock near the river. Okay. So she takes the little statue. Uh, this is the legend. She goes back home. She puts it in a room under her bed, whatever. And then the next morning she wakes up, it's not there. And she goes back to the river and now it's at the river back on the rock. So she takes it again. So she brings it to the priest. He puts it in a lock box. And then the next day it's not there and it's back on the rock by the river. So, you know, Mary wants to be near the water. Okay, that's the idea. So uh, then they believe, so the water must have amazing healing power. And so what happens is you've got all these people that um, believe that this water that's coming out of this spring, and they've moved kind of the basilica now, but uh, there's a little statue of Mary by there, by the, um, you know, on top of the rock. And now every summer, leading up to August 2nd. So when we were there, it was July. And you could see people all on the roads, all through the hills that were walking, taking a pilgrimage to go to the Basilica. And the last part of their pilgrimage, they would get on their knees and they would, they would walk kind of on their knees up to the altar to pray and to make an offering and things like that to show their piety. And then you could walk around. It's a beautiful building and you could go and you could see the water coming out of this pipe uh, right there. And people would bring jugs and... and um, and water, they would take the water, you know, and they would, they would rub it on their knees or their back or whatever's ailing them. In fact, they would sell little trinkets, little silver uh, medallions or things like that that you could uh, leave as an offering and as your prayer that praying for my arm or my leg or whatever. And so they were, they were posted kind of all over. And of course, there's a little shop selling little Mary-shaped water bottles and people were drinking it despite the fact that there's massive amounts of fecal matter that are in the water, whatever, whatever, okay. But um, there was a, somebody told, our guide told us that there was a study done. They're like, they're like don't, don't, don't even touch the water. I was like, dude, you didn't even have to tell me that. I'm not gonna, you don't even, I, I'm like, I'm an American, all right? I just don't, I don't do that. Uh, I've been backpacking enough to see, to know. To know. Um, but in our story here in, in John chapter five, because you know the kind of desperation that people would feel. You know what these people would be feeling as they're gonna you know, take this pilgrimage and, and, and the hopes that this water would bring healing. And so in our scene here in John chapter five, you think of a holiday festival. You've got thousands of people gathering into Jerusalem for, um, for this festival, a much larger crowd than normally would be there. And sure, there was a little market, you know, by, Bethsaida, by the Bethesda, the little thing. They're selling little angel um, trinkets and things like that for this, this angel that would have, you know, stir the water. But imagine it's very busy, chaotic scene, very loud, kind of smelly. You got sheep. It's called the sheep gate, right? You got sickly people. This is the gate where the sheep would have been brought into the temple area to be brought in for sacrifice. It's probably not the best gate. If you're going to call it the sheep gate, archaeology actually has found uh, the sheep gate and confirmed it to be true. In fact, this week we were talking about it and the other pastor, Chris, the one with hair, he, um, he, he was talking about, he, I had him try to look for a picture. He didn't find one, but he's been there, right? So he said, oh yeah, it's awesome. You could see it and all that stuff. In fact, um, 
he said that, that when he was there, uh, he, he got a healing. He used to have a birthmark of a meatball sub, like right here, and, and he got that healed. So you make sure you ask him about that. Um, yeah. Uh, no, anyway, but he has been there. Pastor Chris has been there. And, um, but there's a reason, right, why they put this pool near the sheep gate, because it's kind of out of the way. And that's where the, or where the pool would have been, the sheep gate would have been there because, you know, where there's sheep, there's sheep poop. And this is not Disneyland. They don't have little, dumb, little guys coming along Main Street, you know, with the little, little dustpans and things like that. So it's kind of smelly, stinky, loud, lots of people, all this kind of thing going on. And so um, this guy had been there for 38 years. Now, we don't know the exact nature of his sickness. It's just something where he couldn't walk, so he can't really take care of himself. He can't get married and get a job and have kids, those kinds of things. And so for a guy like this, you can imagine the future is bleak that there's just no, uh, no doubt he was losing hope, that it's just always going to be this way. And so some here, um, ailments, chronic pains, I understand some of you even just sitting right here have those kinds of things and you just start to feel like, is it always going to be this way? Am I always going to be dealing with this? And I just want to kind of say here at the beginning, I want you to see how Jesus uh, initiates, how he enters in to this whole situation with compassion and empathy. And he goes to these people who are suffering and he enters into the suffering with them. And, you know, God has his reasons where at, at times he's going to heal some and not others. And there's no guarantee of healing. I mean, that's a whole other sermon, but I, I just want to point out here how Jesus enters into suffering with suffering people. And he's not afraid to go there when, you know, perhaps these people would have, some of them been unclean uh, ceremonially. And so for Jesus to even go for them or touch them, whatever, would have made him unclean and he still goes. Well, look at verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked, do you want to get well? It's kind of a weird question, right? Do you want to get well? It's like, well, I've been lying here for 38 years next to the water trying to get well. I mean, you know, but I guess it's a better question than, hey, how you doing? You know? um, so it is a strange question, but it's meaningful, I think, for Jesus when he asks these kinds of questions. So I was in my office this week uh, writing this up, and I started to ask Siri some funny questions on my phone. I said, hey, Siri, you know, do you have a boyfriend? And she said, um, I did have a Roomba follow me around for a while. That's what she said. Um, I said, do you believe in God? And she said, humans have religion. I just have silicon. Uh, I said, Siri, when will the world end? She said, right after you hear the words, fire it up. I thought that was pretty, that's pretty good. But I did, I asked her the question here that Jesus is asking. It says, do you, Siri, hey Siri, do you want to get well? And she said, I try to be satisfied with what I have. Oh yeah, Siri, let's all learn from Siri. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, you're so content, you know, Siri. And, um, <laughs> but Jesus makes this offering, you know, for healing. And as we'll see, he doesn't, uh, he, this guy probably doesn't, it doesn't seem to at least know who Jesus is. Because I believe, I think if he would have really known who Jesus is and who it was that was asking him, he might've understood the depth of the question and he might've really um, understood what was being offered. And I don't quite get it because here's a guy that for 38 years has been in a very public place every day. You know that there's gotta be a buzz around the temple. Oh, Jesus is coming. Jesus, have you heard about the rabbi from Galilee? He's coming. He heals people. Da, da, da. You know that there's a buzz going on. And so for some reason, this guy is, doesn't know him or doesn't recognize him, doesn't act like he knows him, doesn't make a big deal about Jesus at all. And I don't quite get it other than the fact that probably this guy by this time is very indifferent. 
He's just like, you know what? Yeah, these, these guys that say they're Messiah, they come and go. Yeah, he's just another religious guy. I'm good, right? And, and you know, I sure hope that's not where you're at today. When you think about Jesus, you're just like, okay, yeah, another religious guy. I'm good. So I've got a couple questions here that, that go along with this text. And the first one is, do you want to get well? That's the very question that Jesus is asking. Jesus makes an offer to heal your soul. Are you indifferent? Ah, I'm good. Do you write him off as just another religious guy? Because I promise you, if you really knew who Jesus was, and if you really knew what was meant by the offer to be well, I think your reaction might be a little different. You see, Jesus wants to know if the man has lost all hope of being healed, and he wants to show the man that he cares. And so he enters into the guy's pain with him. And let me say this tenderly, and I think, I think you'll understand what I mean by it, but not everybody wants to be healed, right? Not everybody wants to get well. And if you think about the scene here, there's some people that would have been there for company. They just wanted to be around people, and there was a crowd there, and they would have been in a community with a bunch of those sick people. There's some people that would have wanted sympathy, compassion, as people are coming by, and other people would have wanted charity. Maybe that was their source of income, relying on others' on others' generosity, but, but not everybody was there to be healed. Some were, no doubt, but not everybody was there. And the reason I know that is because it's the same today, right? Let me ask you, just, you don't even have to raise your hand because I think I know. Do you think that everybody in rehab really wants to get off drugs? Do you think that everybody who sees a psychiatrist really wants to get stable? I just read a, an article this week, you know, about millennials, how it's kind of a badge of honor for them to have a psychiatrist to shrink to go to and they talk, you know, and, and because it becomes, if they're, not, if they're unchurched, then it becomes almost like their church. There's some place where they can go and get guidance and, and feel better about themselves and those kinds of things. And so, you know, those millennials, I'm a Gen Xer, wink, wink. Okay, you know, they, but they, do they always really want to get well? I don't know. There's a lot of people probably that, that go that don't. They just like the company. You know, and, and the, the question goes here too. Do you think that everybody at church wants to get better? Wants to be healed and forgiven? Not necessarily. See, I think there's some people that go to church to check the religious box, to soothe their conscience, um, to do it for their wife, um, to not feel guilty because it's a habit. Maybe they feel like if I do this for you, God, then you can do this over here for me. I, I don't know, but when it comes to actually like God saying, okay, well, I want to change this about your life. That's like, oh, okay, hold up, right? I hope that's not where you're at today too. Because here's the principle that I think we all understand is that the want to precedes the how to. Want to precedes how to. This goes across the board, right? We all know this principle. You, you know, think about this. You may have some, uh, some really good friends that are having some marriage troubles and you're trying to counsel them on what to do and you're giving them great books and resources, videos and, and advice and date night ideas and stuff like that. But you know, if they don't want to, nothing's gonna happen, right? But you also know if they really do want to, then just about any how to is gonna help. But if they don't want to, the greatest how to is gonna fall on deaf ears. So imagine if somebody came to me, uh, I was just over in the kids' area after eight o'clock and there was Brett, it was fantastic. He was dancing, he teaches our kids today and he was over there dancing, leading some dancing with the kids. So the, the perfect, like I said, with my illustration, that uh, <laughs> imagine somebody coming to me saying, um, they're really excited about interpretive dance and they want me, they want to teach me 
how-to interpretive dance so that I can lead a ministry to little kids in interpretive dance. So they're going to buy me books on dance theory, and they're going to show me all the videos on creative moves, and they're going to show me how to actually stretch. And uh, that's been a long time. And then they're going to teach me how to jump with ribbons and take me to the store and buy me some spandex and tights and sparkly shoes and stuff like that. And, and, and see, all the how-to means nothing. Why? I don't want to. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry to put the vision in your head of me in tights, but you know, I don't want to. I don't need to pray about that. Um, I'm pretty sure God did not make me that way. And I don't want to interpretive dance. All right. And there's no amount of how to that's going to fix that. Right. I mean, there's plenty of things that are in life that we know how to, and we don't want to. I mean, do I want to be skinny? Sure. Does it mean giving up super burritos? Okay. I don't know if I want to. All right. And so Jesus may be asking you the very same question he's asking this guy, right? He's like, do you want to get well? Look at verse seven. He says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And it's just, this guy's weird. This guy is so weird. It's a weird answer to the question. Jesus asked the guy if he wants to be healed, not why are you not healed yet? He says, do you want to be healed? You see, it's, it's kind of like, is your response to Jesus' offer for life change a list of excuses why you haven't changed them yet? Or do you just answer, yes, Lord, heal me? See, I'm convinced that there's a lot of people that prefer the chaos that they know to the healing that they don't know. I mean, they, they talk about this with kids in school, that, that there's kids that, you know, their life, everything in their life is so chaotic and drama-filled at home that when they come to a peaceful classroom, they don't quite know how to cope. And so they create chaos and drama because that's what they're familiar with and that's, what they, that's where they thrive. And it, and it creates that. And so there's some people, I think, that are so used to drama that that's what they live in, that they create drama so that they can be comfortable and it's because you know that the miserable life I know is sometimes preferable to an uncertain future. That some people might prefer a slavery where I think I have control over, over a repentance where God gets control. It's a lot easier to complain about something than to let God change it. And I want to be really careful here. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you're not physically healed, it's because you don't want to be. I'm not saying if you're not physically healed, you're just complaining rather than doing. I'm not saying that it, you just want company, sympathy, or charity. Please don't hear that. I know there's a lot of people with chronic and, and possibly terminal illnesses, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and you've maybe not gotten an answer to the physical healing, and I surely don't want to gloss over that or oversimplify that, and I don't know why God may be saying no or not yet. I, I, I don't know. I just know that in this scene right here, Jesus is asking a man not just for physical healing, He's asking him, do you want to be healed and get well spiritually? Do you want to get well? It's obviously not just a physical healing. It's an inner healing of this man's soul. This man cannot heal himself physically by getting himself into the water. And neither can he heal himself spiritually by having his sins forgiven. So Jesus wants to heal your soul, forgive your sin, give you a right relationship with God. And I, and I believe he'll sometimes use healing a body to get to your soul. And sometimes he'll use not healing your body to remind you of your soul need for him and what it means to truly be well. 
So in verse eight, Jesus, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And so in an instant, 38 years, this guy's been laying there, unable to move. And it's gone with a word. Amazing stuff, right? This is one of those scenes that I want to see. Like when we get to heaven, you know, I want Jesus got a whole stack of VHS tapes, you know? He's just like, let's just home movies. Let's just show this one. I said, let's show John 5. Okay, we got it right here. You know, Jesus is going to plug that one in. I want to watch that one. Um, but, but if that was you, you know, and Jesus healed you after all that time, wouldn't you be so ecstatic? Wouldn't you just do just about anything to, for Jesus? Yeah? Well, this guy, again, he's kind of a weirdo. And so he doesn't. So let's look at the second question. Because the second question is, do you have the courage to stand for him? Because look at verse nine, it says, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, surely these Jewish leaders knew this man. You don't walk by a guy for 38 years on your way to work, right outside the temple, and not notice a guy like that. It does seem strange to me a little bit that their first reaction is about worrying about him carrying his little reed mat rolled up. Not, Hey, Bob, look at you, man. Who healed you? Well, how'd that happen? Well, good for you, Bob. I'm so happy for you, right? You would think that that might be the reaction. Nope, these guys are the rule keepers. These guys are the starch shirt tucked into the khaki pants, clipboard in hand, making sure everything's done according to the regulations. That's this guy, okay? And so God had given a command, obviously, for the Sabbath. We know the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is in there to, to take a rest from work one day a week. Now, God gave it as a principle. He didn't give a whole lot of practical um, working out of the Sabbath. and He just gave the principle, okay? Nowhere in Scripture does it outlaw somebody carrying their bed, okay? But the rabbis came along later. They made 39 laws regarding the Sabbath about what was work and what was not work and what we were able to do in practice, okay? And the 39th rule that they made prohibited, in a sense, something like carrying a bed, okay? So these guys are only concerned about breaking man-made rules. They can't be happy for a guy that they've seen for 38 years who's now healed. So they intimidate him. They shake him down to find out who it was that initiated, instructed him to break the rules. So look at verse 11. But, they, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And they said, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Huh? <laughs> it's like, dude, this guy just changed your life in an instant. You didn't get his name? You know, I mean, did you even thank Jesus? What are, what are you doing, dude? I just don't, I don't quite get it. You would think you would, hey, Thank you so much. What's your name? But that, that's not this guy. So verse 14, because Jesus is, of course, never going to leave anything alone. Um, if you think Jesus is a pushover, you, you're not reading right, okay? Jesus is not a pushover. Jesus initiates action all the time. And so he wants these guys, everybody to know that it was him to heal this guy. So that when the guy doesn't know, he goes back to make sure that the guy knows exactly who it was that healed him. So verse 14, later Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you're well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So Jesus finds him, tells him to stop sinning. The implication is that the guy's now been in sin. This guy has heart sins, heart sickness, inner sickness that wasn't just fixed by outer healing. And I, I'm just kind of wondering, what was this guy doing in the hours following his healing? Did he take all his spare change and go out and drink and gamble and get a prostitute or something like that? I mean, to the effect that now Jesus has to find him and say, hey, stop sinning or something worse is gonna happen to you. I don't know what he did, but he certainly didn't go make an offering. So Jesus warns him to repent, 
to receive the inner healing too that goes along with the outer healing. Because he says something worse. Now that something worse would refer to the wrath of God on him, separating him from God in hell forever, which of course is worse than sickness. I'm sure Jesus hoped that the healing of body would precipitate a healing of this man's spirit, that he would follow and worship Jesus because he was so grateful. But it doesn't look like that happened. So look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. (laughs) What a little snitch, dude. Right? I mean, come on. This guy's got no courage to stand up to these religious guys who are trying to intimidate him. Jesus heals him. He can't even do him a solid when the Sabbath police come by and ask who did it. He can't even cover for Jesus, right? He just runs away and goes, and now he can run, you know? So he's running away to go tell the guy, let me lose my fresh legs now to go snitch on Jesus. And I'm just saying, listen, if Jesus heals you, I hope that you care enough to acknowledge him by name and to thank him, right? I, I hope that if Jesus has forgiven you, that you have the courage enough to stand for him. So let me just say this. This is an old illustration, kind of, I don't know how true it is. You know, it's, it's one of these stories you hear, but who knows? It's about Alexander the Great. That um, following this fierce battle that had happened, there was a young soldier who deserted and fled as a coward. You got to imagine how scary it is to be in battle. And this young man just left and he was apprehended after the battle. He was brought into Alexander the Great's tent. So now you got this young guy, he's trembling. He's not quite sure what's going to happen. And Alexander... The great turns to him. He says, son, why'd, why'd you run? The boy says, well, I was afraid. He says, son, what's your name? And he mumbles something. And Alexander the Great says, son, I'm speaking to you. What's your name? And the boy says, well, my name is Alexander. Alexander the Great looks at him. He says, you know, son, so I'll tell you what. You either change your behavior or you change your name. And Christian, if Jesus is your Savior, don't let yourself be intimidated in defending his name. Don't let culture keep you from preaching what you practice. Right? We're always told to practice what we preach. Yeah, how about we preach what we practice too? You guys are here on a Sunday morning. <laughs> you got a lot of other things you could be doing, but you're here practicing your faith. So let's not be afraid to preach that. And if you're, if you're embarrassed by Jesus... I think you need to consider changing your behavior or changing your name. You see, because this man, I think that worst thing that Jesus was talking about actually did happen to him. Uh, he never expressed saving faith in Christ, never followed him. And it's likely that he didn't and won't see Jesus again until judgment day. And on that day, I think he will have wished that he had stopped and bowed down and worshiped Jesus and followed him. But you see, for us, I mean, if God, for those of us that love Christ, you know, if, if God never blesses you again, you have no other response but to love and to worship and to serve him for the rest of your life for everything he's already done for you, right? I mean, how easy is it to be faithful when you're receiving blessing from his hand? And he has blessed us and he has made us well by dying on the cross for us. And we should be grateful enough to serve him and love him for the rest of our lives, even if we never saw another blessing but I'm pretty sure we're going to get another blessing. We have the courage to stand for him. And I love it because this, this man is an example to me of, of, of how Jesus works because this guy is totally undeserving. 
I mean, you think about the dozens, hundreds of people that would have been around that pool. There's probably many more people sitting there that would have been more deserving of a healing that love God more than this guy. And yet Jesus seeks him out and he heals this guy, completely undeserving. And yet I'm pretty sure that every single person in this room is undeserving as well. So praise God that he heals the undeserving and he comes to us to do it, right? So verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. So this story is a healing, is, of, of this healing is the beginning of a, of a whole season now of persecution leading up to the cross in, in the book of John. This is the, the first issue of persecution where it's coming. And so Jesus removes all trouble from this guy and this guy initiates all trouble for Jesus now. And there's more going on here though, okay? There's a larger purpose here and it brings us to the third question, because I really believe that the healing here is only a prompt for Jesus' real intentions with this whole scene. And the third question is this, do you believe the Father and the Son are working? Because what if I told you that this whole thing was not about the healing? I mean, it's not about the man's faith. He didn't have any. It's not about repentance. He didn't show any. It's not about Jesus' healing power over the Sabbath. This man had a chronic illness. Jesus could have come back the next day and healed the guy. It wasn't terminal. So it's not really even about the Sabbath. What if Jesus set this whole thing up to start a conversation about who he is? You see, because if it was about the healing, he would have gone back and healed everybody else at the pool. If it was about the Sabbath, he would have just told the religious leaders, you know, hey, that's just your man-made rule, man. That's not in the, in the Old Testament. No, Jesus wants to bring up the bigger issue and he spends the rest of chapter five doing it. And I, I urge you to go back this, to, uh, today and go back and read the rest of chapter five. But Jesus is pushing this idea about his own deity. Jesus says he forces the issue about his authority to do the Father's work. So his response, when they start persecuting him, Jesus' immediate response is verse 17. He says, my father is always working at, at his work to this very day, and I too am working. You see, of all the verses, you guys, it, it, it all focuses, boom, it all funnels to this right here. My father is always at work to this very day, and I am working. You see, Jesus creates an opportunity to say to a large festival crowd that's out there, he says, I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. And he says, I can do, I only do what my father does because my father and I are one. And there is no mistaking Jesus' claim here to Godhood Because in verse 18, immediately after, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so for the next at least seven verses, and even later um, in, in verse five here, in big red letters, he talks and he says, the son could do nothing by himself. He only sees what the father's doing. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. The father will will show the son even greater things. As the father raises the dead and gives life, so the son gives life. The father judges no one. He's entrusted all judgment to the son. So all will honor the son as they honor the father. If you don't honor the son, you're dishonoring the father. And as the father has life in himself, so the son has life in himself. And on and on it goes for for the whole time in chapter five. Jesus is clearly making a claim here of over man-made Sabbath rules because he's God. He's equal to the Father, sent by the Father to do the Father's will because they are one. This is such a big deal for me. I I try to drill this in with your kids all the time. And I make them repeat it after me, and I'm going to make you do the same. Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God. He is. It is so clear right here. Now listen, you're going to get some well-dressed people that are going to come to your door sometime on a Saturday morning and you're going to pretend that you're not home. (laughs) And they're going to talk to you about buying a Watchtower magazine and stuff. Or you might even find some really sweet young men in white shirts, black ties, and bicycles who are going to say very similar things. And they're going to say that the Jesus was created by the Father, firstborn among creation, and they'll use that verse, say that Jesus was created. Or they'll say that Jesus never says in the Bible that he's God. And that's just not true. It's right here. <laughs> Jesus said it so clearly, they're going to kill him on the spot for blasphemy. He makes himself equal with God. You cannot be equal with God and not be God unless you believe in polytheism. And so he, he, it's clearly a claim to deity. There's no mistaking it. And this whole scene is set off by Jesus. It's a flashbang thrown into the room to get everybody's attention about his deity. And so Jesus does this whole thing to bring it to this point. He initiates contact with the man. He walks into the temple area during a festival when there's a huge crowd. He knows that he's under the watchful eye of all these religious leaders, that they're, they're watching him really closely. He purposely heals the man on a Sabbath, a man who doesn't deserve it, but he knows that he commands this guy to carry a mat and he knows these people are watching. He knows that that's against their rules, their direct violation. And you know, it's a man who doesn't know who he is. So Jesus goes back and makes sure the guy knows who he is. And the first thing Jesus says in response to the Sabbath question is, it's because I'm God. So it's clear that he was at what he was after this whole episode. Jesus uses a healed man to spark an opportunity to speak to the crowd about who he is because understanding who he is brings an inner healing of the soul, not just outer healing of the body. Inner healing of the bo- outer healing of the body is important, but I think that we would all acknowledge that an inner healing of the soul is why Jesus came. He didn't come to teach He didn't come to heal. He didn't come to be a religious figure. He came to die on a cross to remove our sin that we can have a right relationship with God. That's it. So without stretching the point too much or making it too personal, let me just say, is it possible that your healing or your non-healing has very little to do with the healing itself? Is it possible it has very little to do with you at all? Could Jesus be using that as a larger conversation about who he is and what he's doing? Because you know, everybody that gets healed physically is going to get sick again. Last I checked, the death rate is still 100%. And so maybe it's more of an acknowledgement about who he is and his godhood. Maybe our healing or non-healing is a minor piece of a major picture. Maybe there's a hundred other things that God is doing to lift up his name and his kingdom that have really very little to do with us and a lot to do with other people. Maybe what you're going through is meant to shine light on his glory so that everyone else could know that the Jesus the Son is God equal to the Father. So even if it seems like God has forgotten you and abandoned you, rejected you, that he feels so far away, can you still say, when Jesus says, my Father is always at work to this very day and I too am working? Because if you know his heart, and you know who he is, and you know that he's for us and not against us, then you can take courage because you know he's working and the son is working on your behalf to this very day. 
So with a pool of physically sick people all around, Jesus goes there, initiates. He's always initiating and attacks the inner sickness of religious pride and rule keeping and lost hope and disbelief and weak excuses for all these reasons why you can't follow him or you won't follow him. Jesus goes there to pick a fight so we can talk about not just healing bodies, but healing souls. You see, because the greatest sickness that was there is the same plague that is in our society today is still rampant. It's not trusting Jesus is coming from the Father as the Savior to die for our sins and thinking that we can do all this on our own. I'm good. You're not good. You've never been good. <laughs> we try, but you've never been sinless. You've never been out of some kind of rebellion against God when God says, do this, and you're like, nope. Or God says, don't do that, and you're like, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway. You've never been in that state. And you can't, just like this guy can't get himself up to go get himself into the water to be healed, you can't get forgiveness of your soul on your own. And that's why he came. And that's why in verse 24, he says, this is one of my favorite verses, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It doesn't say wish for, it doesn't say maybe, it doesn't say hopefully, it says has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. Are you ready to cross over from death to life? Are you ready to be healed of your true inner sickness, the real source of your paralysis, which is your self-reliance and your indifference to a savior? See, because the, it's a promise here. He says, if you hear my word and you believe him who sent me, you will be healed, you will have eternal life, and you will cross over from death to life. That's amazing. There's all kinds of questions that we have here that are all answered in chapter five. You see, there, there's a question, you know, are you, are you healed, but you're still sitting on your mat? Christian, are you? Then the, the red letters say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Are you embarrassed by Jesus? Well, the red letters say stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Are you failing to believe in God because, you don't, because healing isn't coming and you just don't see that bigger picture and you're, fail, you're failing to really trust him right now? Verse 28, the red letters say, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. So we have a future promise. Are you comfortable with life as it is and you don't really wanna be healed? You're good. Verse 23 and 4 says, The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let me close with this. There's a study that was done by, uh, of people who had had a stroke or a heart attack, so a major heart event. And they were asked, you know, how many of you have gone and done these three preventative measures for having another event? It's, it's quit smoking, eat healthy, exercise. Pretty simple stuff, right? How many people do you, and what percentage do you think did all three of those things after a heart attack? 4.3%. 4.3%, right? Want to precedes how to. And the doctor was quoted in this article I read yesterday. It says, uh, patients don't want to be told that they're bad. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Boy, you need a medical degree for that? Um, <laughs> you know, but it's true, right? You know, people don't want to be told they're bad. And, and I got to believe that that's why a lot of people don't respond to Jesus' offer to be healed because they don't want to be told that they're bad. 
They don't want to think, they want to think they're good enough, that they don't want to be told that they're a sinner. And I'll tell you the most liberating thing in the world is to be told that you're a sinner. Because one, you can stop faking it like you're not. And number two, you can say, okay, I have a means and a way to get my sin forgiven. Jesus dying on the cross, he takes it all away. Because if you act like you don't have sin and you're good, then what you're left with is this knowledge in your own head, like, I know I'm not good enough. And you go to sleep every night thinking of that. The Father and the Son are always working, wooing you, drawing you to Him, allowing and creating circumstances to get you to admit your sin sickness, to heal you on the inside and the outside and believe in the cross and not be condemned to cross over from death to life. I hope you want to get well today. Let's pray.